0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Legal podcasts always have caveats, so here is ours. Your other moderators today, Yvette and Elisa, are national security attorneys who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. The Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at the annual review of the Field of National Security Law Conference on November 1st and 2nd to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these issues. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash Security and in the notes to this podcast. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Elizabeth Rinskoff-Parker and Suzanne Spalding about foreign threats to American democratic institutions and the ways in which lawyers, policymakers, and everyday citizens can counter those threats. So let's get started. And it is
1: absolutely the case. We know that in addition to leaning into divisive issues that already exist or existing narratives like judges are just politicians who wear robes and Mm -hmm. uh, those kinds of things that Putin and his uh, crew lean into and exacerbate and fan the flames of, uh, that they take advantage of ignorance of areas in which the American public doesn't understand, for example, the need to protect uh, juveniles who are in the criminal justice system and that therefore there is not a lot of information that can be given out about what the resolution of that case was. And that's, we certainly saw that in the Twin Falls case. And, and so that, that secrecy and a lack of understanding of the process is fertile ground for conspiracy theorists.
2: There are also some real, you know, debates to be had about this issue, right? Like, there's been a continuous discussion about whether or not prosecutors or judges should be elected, right? Whether or not they should be, you know, stand for for uh, election and have, you know, what are we voting for, right? There's uh, also the continuous conversation about the nominations of the Supreme Court justices, right? Well, we know that if uh, it's if it's a conservative. It was in the White House, they're gonna try and nominate conservative justices. And recently we we're talking about like the balance of the court, whether the court is gonna swing conservative, right? And that's all based on who the president is who nominated that justice, right? There's, you know, that controversy about David Souter being a closet liberal and, and, and it being a big surprise because he didn't turn out to vote in the same way that you know the president who nominated him would have wanted so how do we you know even as we educate people about civics how do we address some of these you know these topics these arguments that that are a part of the system
1: yeah it's such a good point and a really important point and as i said i think it's essential that we recognize that if russia disappeared tomorrow our Discussions, uh, heated discussions, and divisiveness around immigration issues or racial justice issues, for example, would not go away. The problems that that we work to to perfect in our justice system will not would not go away. They are not of Russia's making. What I'm focused on is the way in which a nation state adversary is u- is exacerbating rather than trying to help address those issues. Uh, for, the, for, for the purpose of weakening us. So it's absolutely essential that we acknowledge that our institutions need to continue to strive to live up to the confidence that we ask the public to put in them, that they need to have in order to continue to to, to function as that pillar of democracy, that they operate in a way that merits that confidence, and that we continue as a society to discuss and debate and work and agitate for you know the, the the kinds of changes that we think are important. What is not acceptable to me is that is to have a nation state adversary come in and muck around in that very legitimate discussion and debate in ways that are designed expressly to weaken us, not to make us better.
3: And the data would show. Correct me if I'm wrong. That. The less you understand about our institutions, the more vulnerable you are to these this messaging. Because sort of the baseline, the shared narrative, the shared understanding of the basics of how the judiciary operates, as the one of the three branches of government, the more likely you are to give into these fears and respond to any kind of hysteria.
4: Um, And the notion that perhaps you would think it appropriate that a judge's decision be politically based, but we know that's not the way our system works, and indeed your example of David Suter is an excellent one. Um, It's one, I think, that 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 really covers almost every one of our judges. The answer is they're trained to analyze and interpret based on a rule of law, not based on political uh, voting, and that's a quite different decision-making process, and it's one that we don't talk, I think, enough about, and that people may not understand well enough.
1: And I think it's, it, Elizabeth, to that point, it's important to distinguish between the very political process by which judges are confirmed, and particularly Supreme Court justice, and we're about to see it play out, right? We're seeing it play out right now. And the, the having that spill over to assuming then that all judges are political there's there's a there's a process by which politicians advise and consent on judicial nominations and they do so in a way that is i think i think it's fair to say increasingly political and partisan but again that that's distinguished from differences among judges in judicial philosophy and i think that gets lost on a lot of the american public that differences in judicial philosophy do not mean that judges are just operating to achieve political outcomes.
4: So I think Suzanne's just made a really very good point, and let me make it even more stark if I could. There's a case regarding Yukos oil where, and this has been documented, telephone justice, so called, is evidenced in documents that were produced in court, with a judge actually being called by those in contact with senior members of the Russian oligarchy. And let's
3: talk about what Lukos is, just to for the... Lukos, ammunition. yeah. It's,
4: an, it's a large oil company that uh, is one of those that the Russian government sought to uh, commandeer, essentially, and much litigation ensued. The judge in that case, an Armenian judge, made a decision that was not something that was welcomed by the Russian oligarchs who were trying to influence the outcome. And he was contacted and told, you will decide this differently. Now, that's a stark example of what in many totalitarian systems would be termed telephone justice, that one of the political powers can actually pick up the phone and call a judge and say, we want this decision to come out this way. That's the kind of thing that no matter what your interpretation of constitutional provisions in the United States would be seen as acceptable. No judge whether you would say a traditionalist or a, a person of more conservative bent or more liberal bent would say well that's an acceptable outcome. So there you have a very, I think, stark example of the kind of problem that we see the Russian and other totalitarian systems promulgating and that is completely foreign completely different to the way our judges, no matter whether we we characterize them as conservative or liberal, understand their role on
1: the court. And yet I think part of the uh, Russian information operation narrative is to convince members of the American public that our justice system is just as corrupt and political. And at the end of the day, what Putin has succeeded in doing with his population in Russia is to so confuse them with lies and misinformation that they have abandoned the notion of truth that there is the belief in the idea that there is an objective truth and I I think that is part of what they are trying to do with the American public and if you think about the role of the courts as arbiters of the truth, if you reach a point where you have given up on the idea of truth, where, did, where does that leave the relevance of the courts?
3: Well, I can say um, if you doubt that, go work in South America and some of the court systems down there or trained people in South America. You'll find very quickly that much of the population gives into rumor and innuendo and they think the truth is murky that's a pretty frightening proposition. If we begin to adopt that, the less we know, the more likely I think that is. And I think that that it's uh, fair
4: to say that our judges understand the difference between facts and law, that you have to establish what the facts are, and then apply legal principles. Now, they may not all come to the same decision, but that distinction is one that I think they share in common.
0: Could you give us kind of the top five list of things that lawmakers and thought leaders and businesses, so people who have a certain amount of influence over these things, could do to turn this ship around and help us protect our judicial branch from this level of undermining?
1: So in the report that we uh, came out with in February on uh, adversary attacks on fundamental democratic institutions, we came up with five recommendations. They're Written broadly to cover uh, attacks on democratic institutions and not just the judiciary, um, but they certainly apply to the work that we're doing on the judiciary as well. And it starts with publicizing what's going on uh, and understanding the activities of uh, particularly nation state adversaries in this uh, and their interference in our democratic institutions. And then we need bipartisan action. Uh, working together to address this. This cannot be a partisan issue, Uh, and so uh, we need to understand defensive measures, we need need to consider offensive measures, and we need to do that in a bipartisan way. We need to improve transparency into the ways in which um, they are accomplishing these objectives, particularly around issues like campaign finance reform, foreign agent disclosure, and tagging of bots, and so some of the techniques that are being used to corrupt systems.
3: And let me pause for a minute. Tagging a bot is an important idea. Can you explain a little bit before we go any further?
1: (laughs) So uh, what we've learned, of course, is that much of the information warfare is uh, undertaken on social media and is promulgated in an automated way instead of having individuals retweeting or tweeting uh, or promoting on Facebook, uh, they are really using an automated technology to push this out and we call those bots. And increasingly platforms like Facebook uh, and Twitter are trying to use technology to counter that, to identify these automated uh, techniques for promulgating this uh, misinformation or disinformation, and 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 identify those, and in many instances shut those down.
3: So that's really important suggestion. Sorry to grab you and highlight that in the middle of this, but yeah, no, it was so no, good. I have to yeah, stop everything. I, yeah, that's a, it's an
1: it's an important tool that's being used, and it's one we need to. Um counter and, and that's the the next recommendation, which is that we do need to understand which of the techniques are have the greatest impact. And there's an area where I think some additional research is is being done and is really needed to understand where where which are the c- kinds of techniques that create the stickiest, if you will, messaging and uh and, and reaches the most people and then how do we counter those most damaging techniques? And then finally, and I think Elizabeth will expand on this is this important concept of enhancing our shared narrative and reinstilling in the American public a sense that we need to work at defending democracy, that we cannot be complacent, that our democracy is under attack, and that it really does require that we remember why democracy is important, that we teach this to our children, and that we, we remember
3: the things that unite us. I'm sorry, I don't have time for that. I need to check my social media account. <laughs> all right. That might be you, and if it is, it's time to change. All right. What are the top five things that all Americans should be doing themselves to protect these institutions? We've all, we all agree that you can't rely on intelligence community. You can't rely on just the lawyers. This has to go out. Everybody has to take personal responsibility.
4: Well, maybe I'd broaden it just a little
3: bit if I could, uh, <laughs>
4: but I think Suzanne's right. I think we've got to bring back civics, as I'm referring to it, a, a deeper understanding and an appreciation for our system of government, why it's important. I think it really ought to be part of our teacher education. We ought to be thinking about not just uh, arithmetic and reading, but also civics. Uh, one concern that I have is that I think our immigrant population, when they are Uh, presenting themselves for citizenship probably know more about the system of government they are about to join than those of us who've been reared here
3: in the United States. That's right. They have to take these citizenship tests after which they may know things that That all the 13-year-olds
4: don't. Exactly. Um, So I think, yes, the 13-year-olds need to be engaged, but I think adults need to be engaged, too, in the kind of civics education we're talking about. And again, My experience in California comes in here because there was a course that was offered to adults, citizens, um, that the uh, district attorney and others uh, in the federal and state government would participate in, and they went through a five-week course where they were actually um, given the chance to have instruction and to learn more about the system of government that, that we enjoy. Um, I think learning about our intelligence community is terribly important and that too was something that I was able to do in a series of courses when I was the dean of the law school for not law students, although certainly they were a target audience, but citizens as, as well. And here again, I think there was a thirst to understand, but a lack of an opportunity to really gain the kind of information that they needed. Um, I think, and this may take us a little bit further, I think we need to understand why our system of government is so special. And here I suppose I could say that if I had a magic wand, I'd have everybody spend six months in another country and then come back and understand. But it's the comparison that I think really points out that we're not talking about kind of a moral relativity here. We have a very special system and it's one that stands apart from many other nations in the world. When I first went to then the Soviet Union, um, my then boss was a Sovietologist, and he made an important point. He said, keep in mind the difference in Soviet, now Russian law, and U.S. law. There's a difference in law that says you may only act if the law says you can, and the law here in the United States which only acts to prevent certain types of conduct. That was powerful. So the the way in which this came into focus was, many may not remember glasnost, but this was the openness that um, in the Gorbachev era the uh, Soviets were trying to embrace, and they said, do we need a law to allow openness? Well, I thought, what a strange question. Here in the United States, our Constitution protects us to do whatever we want unless there's a law that specifically says no you may not beat up your neighbor or you may not do harm to someone as a retaliatory measure but unless there's a specific law you're allowed to enjoy the freedom that an individual should have in a democratic society I don't think we really appreciate what a distinction we have and what an important Wonderful gift we have in our court system and the legal system that it protects. It's
3: a, uh, certainly, a very durable. It's a, it's a very durable government that we have established.
4: Well, maybe we want to ask the question: Is it? Is it if we don't
3: understand and protect it?
2: So
4: education is the answer. Uh, which that's the answer
3: to a lot of questions, mm-hmm. honestly. Education, participation. <laughs> put down your cell phone and start thinking about this.
1: I <laughs> mean, there, it, there is a school of thought that we are vulnerable because of our freedoms because of our openness because we have this wonderful gift that Elizabeth has described and because we debate we and disagree that, right, and that we should somehow change that fundamental nature in response to this threat that we should restrict the flow of information that we should shut things down and my bias is that we trust the wisdom of our founders, that that devised a system in the wake of a war, a very real existential threat. Uh, they devised a system they thought would keep this country strong and safe for you know many years to come. And I think we need to trust that system. So I, I'm a big believer that we we our best tools for fighting this information warfare is with more information.
3: Sounds right. You can't necessarily trust something you really don't understand. So that was really illuminating. Thank you so much for coming by. We
2: wanna know what we can expect from you in the future.
1: So we are continuing to work this, to understand the nature of this threat from nation state adversaries who may want to undermine the appeal of democracy and to weaken us. Uh, And we're also moving out on on doing some training for judges at the federal and state level uh, around the ways in which cybersecurity, for example, uh, could cyber threats could be used to undermine public confidence, as well as more traditional kinds of information warfare, but also to raise public awareness. So we'll be doing some more public programming around the threats to our democratic institutions and the important role that, that Americans need to play in standing up for and defending that. And I think
4: I would add that, that it's very important that certainly lawyers understand this and take an important and leadership role in protecting the legal system and the judiciary, but that's not enough. It's going to have to expand to those who are not lawyers but who are responsible citizens who understand that the freedoms they enjoy are only going to be available if they understand
3: and are in positions to protect them. Wonderful. Uh, Suzanne Spaulding, Elizabeth Rinskoff Parker, it's been a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, thanks to both of you for your careers in national security law and for your service to the United States. Um, we're really privileged to have had you, and I commend this article, um, the CSIS article, and also the opinion piece written by uh, Suzanne. To our listeners, If uh, if you haven't seen it, you really should. We will certainly hyperlink both and we hope that you'll return to do an, another episode. And I hope when you do, you're reporting, you're going to report to us heightened literacy uh, in America about our system, uh, our renewed energy and understanding and wanting to protect it. And I hope, Suzanne, that we have heightened literacy on the cyber threats we face.
2: And to that point, we'll link to the CSIS report. We will. And uh, we will invite you to read those and We thank you for listening to National Security Law today. Tune in again
3: for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff and pop vitamin D all day, or you are ready to battle the forces that would try to undo our important American institutions by seeking laws and policies that protect us in a world with a constantly changing threat topography, Or you're just smart enough to know that national security law gives you a front-row seat to history and a
0: chance to protect our shared American narrative and our shared values.
2: And you don't want to sit on the sidelines or just read your pre-packaged news feed.
3: Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Hey, remember folks, listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really reading and understanding the Constitution nor is it networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences and don't miss the annual review conference in Washington, D.C. on November 1st and 2nd.
2: Check us out at AmericanBar.org NatSecurity. Follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec or check out our Facebook page. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their at least one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, which is available for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.